I teach 100 students, 10 classes, so I did it a little easy way. I used not a very strong password for every student in this one class. And as I yeah. was doing it on the smart board, they saw me and I said, here, you know, I'm modeling, here's how you sign into your account. This is it. And I said, by the way, everyone has this. And they're like, when I said everyone has the same password, like, oh, no, no, that's not <laughs> a strong password. Ooh, and they, they, they like literally let me have it. This is Lock and Code, a Malwarebytes podcast. I'm your host, David Reese. Our main story today is about special education. We are fully back in school in the United States, and for many kids, that means a lot more internet activity. Either for homework, right? But also just to stay in touch with the friends who they likely haven't physically seen in three months. But for some kids, about 20 months because of the pandemic. And all of that internet activity also means many more concerned parents because the internet, as some might say, is bad. These parents' concerns are likely why around August and September and October even, you can easily stumble upon a back-to-school internet safety guide put out either by a children's media and tech nonprofit like Common Sense Media or a teacher's trade publication like EdTech Magazine or let's be honest, a cybersecurity vendor. And these guides often say the same things. Don't let your kids share personal photos online. Don't let them share sensitive information like their full names, addresses, or their school's name. Don't let them share passwords. Don't let them meet in person a stranger they met online. And that's all good, valid advice. It really is. But it's kind of strange that adults are so bad at following that advice as well. We share private information all the time for fun. We use the same repeated passwords across multiple accounts. We click on unknown links. We chat with strangers. My goodness, we even buy things from strangers. And we sometimes agree to meet at that stranger's house to make the purchase. Now, you could say we're adults. We understand risks a little more thoroughly, and it's up to us to make those risk assessments. Those are pretty much safe assumptions. But what if I told you that most children's internet safety guides, through no malice, of course, are making some other assumptions? Assumptions about similarities between children, that all kids can read at the same level, that they all process emotions the same way that they all have the same needs and the same support systems. These assumptions largely forget children with special needs. If you think remembering the rules of online safety is already hard enough for a child, how do those rules change for a child with, for instance, autism or with behavioral challenges? What happens when we try to design and teach internet safety for a group that we cannot simply assume things for? And what works better? amongst these groups. Today, to help us understand internet safety lessons for special needs children, we're speaking with Alana Robinson, a special education technology and computer science teacher for K through eight. Alana, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. This is a great podcast and a great topic, I think, and I love that you're including that angle of students with disabilities. So thank you. <laughs> <laughs> thank you. Opening immediately with flattery for the podcast. Very nice tactic. Thank you for that. <laughs> Alana, let's get right into it, right? I think 
a lot of our listeners may instinctively understand the risks posed to children being online, right? There's threats of cyberbullying, of interacting with strangers, of encountering predatory behavior, right? And of just sharing too much private information on social media platforms. Are the threats posed to children with special needs any different? Or, or are there just certain risks that are more pronounced for children, depending on their needs? There are threats that are posed to children with special needs. It's pretty great. It's great for all students. It's great for adults as well, because as you have mentioned in your opening, we as adults have challenges with this safety behavior online. But what I've noticed from my teaching that students that have behavioral challenges, processing challenges, speech and language challenges, discerning factual online content, discerning what's correct, what is not, videos and things like that is a pretty great risk for our students, for the population that I'm teaching. Misinformation and disinformation online is a great threat to our students. There are many times they would come in and say, I saw this online and we would get into discussions because they're pretty adamant that what they saw is correct. And then we have to go in, I as a teacher go into, I don't shoot it down, but what I do is give them opportunities through videos and games and some of the curriculum we're teaching to have them develop skills that are going to make them higher level in discerning what is correct and what is not correct. So a situation where a student comes in and says, I heard this online and I saw this online, I can say, well, can you tell me you just saw this online? Is it shown somewhere else? Are you seeing this in any other medium or information? Or is it just this video? So that's pushing back on the fact that they think everything they read and see online is correct and true. And so digital citizenship, information literacy, media literacy, these are all topics that need to be explicitly taught. So the difference is, as adults, we all think that uh, you should know this. You should know that this doesn't really make any sense or it's not true. <laughs> Which, I mean... As I said, it is also challenging for adults. And yeah. in school, most schools have some digital citizenship curriculum and they teach it. In our context, we teach digital citizenship to our students with disabilities. And because our students, I also teach students who are autistic, because a lot of students with disabilities, sometimes they have challenges. One of their challenges is understanding social cues. So the Social cue online is even more murkier. It's even harder to discern what is said online and, and understand what it means. Mm -hmm. And so we, one of the, the things that I think is, is even heightened and greater for students with disabilities is that aspect of consuming information and content online for our students and our kids who are with special needs, or we call them neurodiverse students. Mm -hmm. um, you know, how do we get them to develop these cues and understand these cues in an online content? And so a lot of it is really involving explicitly teaching this content using 
a wide range of curriculum with a lot of game-based modules. So every child likes a game. Gamification is really amazing. I, even adults love games. And so most, a lot of the curriculum I use is gamified in the sense that they continue to go through challenge modules that is getting them to make decisions. And based on how their decision-making is done, they earn badges or they don't. And then they repeat some of these modules again, because based on the score, you can determine, are they grasping this skill and concept or they're not grasping it? And so definitely the biggest piece also, this could not really be successful, is including parents. It's really looking and having parents as our partners, providing resources on digital citizenship and online safety and information literacy slash cybersecurity to our parents, sending home these kinds of tips with them and just really regularly keeping in contact with them on here's a topic we're teaching. Password, when kids are setting up their password, here's something that we're teaching them. Here's how you can support them at home. Here are some tips you can do at home in making sure that they're not being preyed upon. Here's a way that you can monitor their media consumption. Here's a way you can monitor their online consumption. Here's some tips and safety tips you should look and make sure that even if you're not there, Here's how you can set your devices so that you're able to monitor their consumption and their online use. Yeah, we're definitely going to get to some of those tips later in the show. But something that you said at the at the very top, which interested me quite a bit, is that, like you said, there's a lot of difficulties in discerning what is and what isn't misinformation and disinformation. And you mentioned videos were pretty troublesome, right? And I wonder... Is that something that you deal with every day? Because I can see it like, you know, when I went to school, we didn't have YouTube for a bit, you know, and now it's like a, I, so so really briefly here, right? I actually taught after school students for like a year between college and graduate school. And that was the first time in my life that like, I understood how much kids watch videos. These are just like third and fourth graders that I was, again, just an after school program. We had, a, I had a, my own classroom. It was great. But they were like, they used YouTube as like a homepage, which I thought was bizarre. You know, I was like, what, what is on YouTube for you to look at every day? And it's like, oh, millions of videos, you know, it just hadn't hit me. And so what I'm getting at here is, is this just something that, that you deal with on a, on a personal scale? You know, like I'm sure there's a student who's watching something every single day. Has that just increased dramatically? It's increased. 300% fold. I am of the mindset when it comes to technology that we as educators, myself as a special educator, I use videos. It makes content accessible to my students, right? Because it it's visual. So the videos I use on YouTube support my curriculum. Now, that's the positive, right, of the videos. The not so positive is how are you when you see this video, discerning that this content is correct, that this mm -hmm. content is factual. I use with them many times to say, I can post, right now we look out the window, it is daylight. I can post a video to say, at this day, in this location, in this city, it is not daylight. <laughs> 
So just because you see something on a streaming service that is a video does not mean it is correct. So I give them resources to fact check. This is what we call building digital habits, right? How do you build and develop digital literacy habits? And one of that is giving them the tools, other sites that they can fact check this information on. And you want to steer them to what we call norm-based reputable sources, Mm -hmm. right? Not down a rabbit hole, right? The algorithms that are being (laughs) used with some of these online platforms, these video online platforms, regurgitate. If you're looking for X, then X comes up and X1 comes up and X2 comes up. So what we want to teach kids in their digital habits and their discerning and really learning and discerning what's correct and not, whether it's video, whether it's news, whether it's a TikTok, is this being repeated somewhere else? Someone can come up with a a great invention or cure for something. Are you seeing this cure being repeated somewhere else from a reputable source, not from the X1, X2, X3 rabbit hole video source? And it's, it's really getting kids in... I mean, I have students pushing back and telling me that, no, we never landed on the moon. That's fake. That's a fake video because they're, these are the things that they're consuming on these platforms. Wow. And so I am K through eight. These are some of my middle school students saying this. And what we have to do is say, okay, so I'm going to show you're saying that you found this. Here is some other, here are what we are saying, these are the fact checkers, right? And then you kind of go through with them that fact checking process. Does it work? (laughs) So I call this ongoing, constant. So teaching, like when you learn math, you're, you're building, right? You're building on these different topics and you go to the next grade, you may forget some of these topics. So what are you doing? You're spiraling back right? You're spiraling back and reteaching some of these things. And part of developing digital students into really successful, smart, discernible digital adults is the ongoing constant spiraling and teaching of these concepts through just not like I, I'm the, the tech teacher, but if you can collaborate with other content area educators in your building, then you're, you're infusing it. You're infusing these topics, right, through subject areas. So they're getting an immersive experience. So it's just not isolated. Oh, I, I'm coming to tech and CS and I'm yeah. learning this. No, yeah. I could be learning digital literacy through social studies, right? Looking mm-hmm. at the history of some of these, how kids learned, and this is not how kids learn 30 years ago. It's not how I learned when I went to school. And so you're showing the evolution of technology and learning. Again, that is infusing digital literacy through subject areas, whether it's social studies, infusing it through literacy because they're, you're getting them to write, doing a PSA, public service announcement on don't fall for the fake. How do you make sure you're not falling for a phishing scam? I mean, I'm an adult and sometimes they're really good. So... <laughs> If you have kids work where they are in groups or and you also work with your parents, right, on 
I mean, I just did this mistake because I clicked on it. What are some tips you remember we can all use and remind our friends so that we don't fall for fishing? It's an ongoing work and it never stops. That's why it's you're starting in kindergarten. <laughs> yeah. You're starting in kindergarten and you're starting really simple in kindergarten is you don't talk to a stranger, right? In kindergarten, that's what you're teaching. You don't talk to a stranger on the street. It's the same thing online, stranger danger. When yep. you go to places in your neighborhood, you go with your mom. If you're in kindergarten, if you're going and searching somewhere, you're going with your mom and asking permission. You don't walk out the house if you're five, six years old and just go to the store. You generally ask permission. So it's those parallels and it's that way that we're introducing some of these topics of online safety, making sure you get permission. And again, it is using videos. It's using for our students, you are using a lot of the, I mean, I guess we'll get into this a little later on, some of the techniques and strategies, but a lot of it yeah. is really immersive where it's music, it's videos, it's projects that they're working on, and it's gauging their interests. You're including, if you, if you know, the beginning of the year, a lot of times you're finding out what they like to do, doing like an entrance inventory. And once you see that, oh, I like gaming or I, or this is, you know, how much time, like you even do like a tech survey of how much time they spend online gaming and what sites they use. And so based on all that information and data from them, based on their interests, you can adjust some of your techniques because you're, you can, especially students that are of many levels of divergent and diverse thinking and neurodiverse students, if you, the engagement is from their interests. So if you're showing, if they like to watch TikTok videos, then you can include a lesson on TikTok, how to be safe. You can include a lesson. Like I remember, I think it was two years ago, the federal government was thinking of not allowing TikTok to be used here because it might have been a safety risk. And so we had that discussion. And I mm -hmm. said, what happened if you couldn't use TikTok anymore? And it, you know, so you're looking at it many ways that based on their interests, that you you show how relevant these tools that they're using, that it's just not a tool for consuming information, but we want them to also be critical of the tool they're using. I wanted to cover a couple of things because there's so much in there that I learned just in the past, you know, like few minutes that you were saying. And one of the things is that this education, this curriculum building is so focused and it's 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 so tailored, which is kind of amazing. Like it's so like you said, you you learn the tools they enjoy using and then you and then you work through that. You know, you make it applicable immediately, which is good. Like that's a good thing. And then I also learned quite a bit, you know, that it it seems that there's just a, a constant need for reinforcement, that these things can't happen in isolation. And that's partly like why I asked, you know, like, hey, does it, does it work, right? Because I think we are all living in a world right now where misinformation and disinformation are plaguing adults. It's affecting people we know. And you told me we started the show with like, here's how we combat it. And I'm like, oh my gosh, that sounds so lovely. Like that's, <laughs> I'm like, can we borrow it? Um, I wanted to go back a bit though, because we've spoken a bit here about different needs. We've spoken about neurodiverse children. What are we talking about? What do we mean when we say special needs today? And I ask that because, right, there, 
a lot of resources that I read online that I found online that speak about these things, but they speak about things like, uh, like Down syndrome and varying levels of autism. But are we also including children with speech and language delays or with behavioral challenges? Help me understand that. Excellent, excellent question. So there is, just giving a little quick background, there are 13 disability categories. This is under the law, the federal law called IDEA, which is for Individuals with Disability Education Act. This was Mm. passed sometime in the 70s. So these categories that we talk about spring out from that law. So the 13 categories, I mean, and then the overarching neurodiverse is kind of a catch-all for those categories, those 13 categories. So you do have, for example, autism is one. We have deaf and blindness is a second. Then we have deafness. Then we have emotional disturbance or behavioral challenge. But the category under that federal law is called emotional disturbance. There's a movement to actually change that, which kind of could be another topic or another subject. The other categories are hearing impairment. There is an intellectual disability. So this is generally kids who are displaying poor communication and are a little bit below intellectual abilities. And Down syndrome would be one of that as an example of an intellectual disability. Multiple disabilities are students that are having multiple disabilities, which is a combination of kind of a physical, like an orthopedic impairment, as well as another disability. So orthopedic impairment are students, for example, if someone that has cerebral palsy, that's an example of an orthopedic impairment, or they're born a certain way, missing a limb or something. Other health impairment is another category. That is generally under kids who are have ADHD. You know, they limits a child's strength, energy, or alertness. That's what the other health impairment. Then there's specific learning disabilities. And this covers a group of students that affects a child's ability to read, write, listen, and speak. Generally, kids who are dyslexic fall under this specific learning disability. There is speech and language impairment. I have students that are under that category. So these are communication disorders, kids that stutter. There is traumatic brain injury, which is generally, as it implies, it's a result of something that happened, an accident that caused by some physical force. There's visual impairment that includes blindness. So these are kids that have eyesight problems or are blind. So those are the basic 13 categories that are federally recognized and schools look at when we're talking about students with disabilities or special needs and and what we call neurodiverse, just to give you a little overall background. That's an expansive list, right? It sounds extremely broad, which leads really well into my next question here, which is, you know, knowing that this is so broad, that this area is quite enormous, right? And that the needs of one of those categories obviously do not translate one-to-one for the needs of another person, another child within a separate category. So considering all of that, that the gamut of special needs could be as broad as it is, when it comes to teaching children how to stay safe online, where do you even start, right? And, and we got a little bit into it. It sounds like it's, it's a mix. It's, it's meeting them where they are, doing things like tech surveys, working with parents. But, but let's, let's dig in a little deeper here. I'd 
love to discuss actual like learning approaches here. You know, what what advice is there for parents? What tools can they use? We we brought up that a little bit earlier. So yeah, again, let's let's dive deeper into the actual programs and tools. So generally, there is a framework that all special educators use. It's called UDL, Universal Design for Learning. It's now used in general ed as well. So UDL was originally adapted for architects who create a building and the building doesn't have accessibility, meaning it doesn't have a ramp. You backward design. So what architects decided to do in this UDL that's now adapted into special education is don't create something and then add on, create something that includes everyone. And so UDL, Universal Design for Learning, which is developed by CAS, a nonprofit group, this framework improves. When I started teaching special ed, they said it was only for special ed, or at least that's what they, they use with us. Like I said, it's now being adapted and widely used in all teaching. So it's no longer just saying UDL is what you use for special ed. It's, it's what you use to optimize teaching and learning. So this framework includes when you deliver content to anyone, because, you know, whether you're with a, whether you're neurodiverse or not, you're providing that content in multiple means of engagement, right? So what does multiple means of engagement use? It means is what I'm talking about. So I develop what's their interests when I do interest surveys. So you're looking at creating options for including that student's interests. That's multiple means of engagement. It means you're giving options for that student to continue and complete that task, whether it's by the setting in the room, whether it's by making it group-based, challenge-based, game-based. So you're including those options. It's always about options when you're engaging and you're giving them opportunities for engagement. You're also giving engagement by offering options to show self-regulation. Self-regulation is really you're showing how do I finish a task? How do I cope with something that's challenging? And I can also go into, I kind of get off into sidebars, but social and emotional learning is another topic that is infused through everything we teach. And I'll just I'll go into what that is in a minute after I finish UDL. I don't want to (laughs) like use all the acronyms again. And also the other thing, as I think about even using these acronyms, that's, that's a barrier, right? Because if someone is listening to this, I have to remember it's universal design for learning because the frequent use of acronyms creates a barrier for people if they're not familiar with those acronyms. So that's just something that even general, if you're teaching, you're using and including every, you're not using acronyms because people are not versed. (laughs) Adults aren't much less if you're using that with kids, but Mm -hmm. I just had to check myself as I started using this UDL. It's actually a universal design for learning framework. So the way you engage with the content and in teaching the content is through these by interest, by giving them ways to self-regulate. The other way is providing many ways of representing that information. So the way you present those multiple means of representation could be through audio, through video, through visual cues. You're also providing many means of representation for language and symbols. A lot of autistic students, they may be verbal, they may be nonverbal. So you're using symbols. So that's the visual. So that's how you're promoting the acquisition by you, and how you're 
the content that you're representing is represented many ways, whether it's through visual, through symbol, mm -hmm. through audio, and the way you're providing opportunities for them to understand or comprehend this content could be by making sure you they first understand, get their background knowledge, right? So you do a check-in. Did you ever hear of this? KWL, what do you know about this topic? Or you can just see if they have a connection to this information. So you're providing and checking many ways of them understanding. And the last tenant and framework under universal design for learning and teaching this digital literacy is, and just teaching in general, right, for all people to learn, is really providing means for action and, and expression. This is key. I'm a person that moves a lot, I, you know, and so providing means for action and expression means that there's dancing, you're introducing something with a song, you're introducing something with a movement, you're introducing a topic with using, you can either ex have them options for them to express and communicate. You're using many ways for them to express and communicate how they've learned it. <laughs> and so that expression and communication could be through, again, you know, presenting something through audio, through talking, through text-to-speech. This is what universal design for learning is, the framework for it. And this is really infused in any classroom. Probably today, I think most teachers use this. So when you hear me talk about videos, when you hear me talk about games, that's universal design for learning because you're getting them to understand content in a way that's you know, that's going to meet their interests in a way that's going to give them opportunities to express what they've learned in a way that's going to give them physical action and expression to display what they've learned. So that is the framework for universal design for learning. And then the other yeah. is what we call social and emotional learning, which is a framework that we use that helps you're explicitly teaching students the guidelines of self-regulation, of social awareness, relationship awareness. I didn't know that. I didn't know that that was um, obviously like a key part of this. <laughs> it, seemed, it seems like it's a huge part. And of course, it would play a role in things like digital citizenship, right? Of course, it would play a role in just operating online because, I mean, I think you could find anyone in the world right, who has gotten into an argument online and just been like, why, why, why did I do that? <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah. And we, we have trouble, we all have trouble regulating our emotions online. And it's like, folks need help. I think we all need help with it. And, and of course, of course, that's a part of it. So the four tenets of the social and emotional learning, which is a developed by Castle, this is another nonprofit group, is self-awareness. Mm -hmm self-management, responsible decision-making, mm -hmm. relationship skills, and social awareness. Now, these are what we call soft skills, right? Life skills. We explicitly teach these skills. Now, when you combine explicitly, generally, we explicitly teach these skills, and it's infused through every topic, ELA, math, social studies, gym, it's infused through every topic. Right. If you're learning a new problem, you're going to do a check in with the kids. How are you feeling learning this? We know it's a little challenging, but let's come up with strategies for when something is challenging, what you can do. That's what that looks like if you're teaching something that's hard or difficult. If I'm teaching computer science or coding 
activity and they're not getting it. You know, you do a little timeout and a check-in. That's social emotional learning infused through all these subject areas. And then now this curriculum that common sense media and education just developed for this year is called social emotional learning in the digital life. I wanted to understand if there are some things like passwords or like like not clicking on links or you know not sharing personal information online are there some things that your students are just particularly great at you know in comparison to how i think a lot of adults are bad at <laughs> and i just want to understand are there just things that special needs students actually excel in you know it's a little broad to say oh all special needs students you know not that but just some it's just like, oh, wow, yeah, this this isn't a problem for them. Yeah, I would say the passwords, because developing a strong password is a formula, right? And it's a simple, teachable formula, because one of the curriculums that's game-based is Interland. Google's the Internet Awesome, and the game is Interland. And there's, okay. there are four modules in it, and one module specifically just addresses password creation. And it's badgy and so on. And then there's also common sense. Their curriculum, they have something called password protection. It's called digital passport. And there are four Mm. modules in that. And again, one of those modules, those game-based modules, is explicitly on how do you not share your information. It begins with creating a strong password. So that is tangible. It's concrete It doesn't require social cues. It's just a formula base. Eight characters is what they're told with uppercase, lowercase, numbers and symbols, right? So that, because of that, they excel at that just because of that, because it's not murky. It's not gray. It's not a social. It's not reading a facial expression or reading (laughs) literacy. It's none of that. It is just formulaic eight characters, numbers, letters, uppercase, lowercase, and they go through the game modules and then they have it really down pat. An example would be, I remember I created student accounts for them. I teach a hundred students, 10 classes. So I did it a little easy way. I used not a very strong password for every student in this one class. And as I was doing it on the smart board, they saw me and I said, here, you know, I'm modeling. Here's how you sign into your account. This is it. And I said, by the way, everyone has this. And they're like, when I said everyone has the same password, like, oh, no, no, that's not a strong <laughs> password. Ooh, and they, they, they like literally let me have it. It's like, how do you, you're not preaching what you're practicing. You're not practicing, excuse me, what you're preaching. That was kind of my humbling moment, but <laughs> yeah. also but gratifying because it shows that they are, and they would go home. I would, I remember they would come back and say, I told my mom that that's not, <laughs> She shouldn't do that because, you know, and I was, that's, it really amazes me. And again, it's, it's because you're, it's such a multi-pronged approach. It's not just that you're explicitly lecturing to them, but you're also giving them the chance to practice in this game module. And then you're bringing in kind of their interests and you're having these discussions and, and, you know, it's, it's a really, I enjoy it. It's really great. I think it's a, it should be a skill that is taught just not to our students. It's, mm-hmm. it should be everyone. <laughs> yeah, I think we all agree, yeah. Yeah. I wanted to take the inverse, actually, of what I just asked. Like you said, 
there are children who are particularly good. They excel at, at password creation because there are no social cues. There's no digital literacy. It's just, here's a formula, here's a thing you do, and it works. Like, it's, it's, it's almost binary. Yes. What is the inverse of that then? What kinds of things do children with special needs, do they need more particular attention with? You know, what, what do they need extra help with because it might be based on social cues. And, and of those things, how can parents play a role? Excellent question. There are many overall topics in uh, the digital literacy, information literacy. Um, again, I feel the greatest challenge for our students is the informational literacy and consuming content online and understanding and discerning between what's true or not. It's also what I call some of the relationship management type, whether it's cyberbullying, whether it's oversharing. So digital footprint is one of the topics, which is whatever you put online stays there forever. And you may be of one age sharing some information. You get older, that information is there forever and anyone can kind of look up that information and see what you said, mm -hmm. as we've seen from adults. <laughs> this is a little challenging because you need to show to parents, this is where parents and all of us as a community really need to be involved because it is getting them to see the long game, right? And also if you, for them, it's, well, this is my friend. And I know this is my friend because we play a game, but you've never met this friend. Again, that's all online relationships. Like how do you get them to be safe if they're doing a game, like they're in gaming communities and they're playing with people they've never met, but they know it's a friend. They say it's a friend, but what defines that? And so giving them the tools, giving them the discussions of if it feels uncomfortable, tell an adult. If someone says something, you never share. So you're including privacy. You're including making sure that there's no predatory type of behavior and getting them to recognize that. Those are many whole of community approach that we all need to be on the lookout for and give parents tips from whether it's the settings that they use of what the kids are using at home, making sure that the settings are of such that you can access them or it's private or it's safe browsing, making sure the apps that they're not able to just download an app, mm -hmm. they need permission. So there are many things that we, as a whole community, educators, parents, everyone, need to monitor. And that I think is a little bit more challenge for students, for neurodiverse students. And it is these things of what I call the sharing online information, sharing your private information, developing their good practices and safe practices of that. It is their gamings, if whenever they, you know, a lot of times if they're coming in or they're playing in these gamings, making sure that they are recognizing behavior that could be not really safe or someone is saying something that makes them, so the word, what we say is that if it makes you uncomfortable, tell an adult. What's an example? There are many communities where they play and they don't meet the person. They just know them by the game the handle, the yeah. screening, the game yeah. handle. Exactly. And so if someone says, Hey, so we go through these types of what we call scenarios and modules. Yeah. And so you, and this is one of the things we do this, as part of the curriculum. And so we would share this with parents, make sure 
If someone says, oh, by the way, my name is blah, blah, blah. You did a really great with that game. Let's meet up in, in person to, you know, pre-pandemic, of course, let's meet <laughs> up or something. We would then have the kids, is this smart? Would you meet up in person? And, and some kids would say, yeah, because mm. we've been playing for this long. And then you have to go through a back and forth discussion, why that's not safe, yeah. why you should tell your parent, why you, and so these are the, we include and give parents these tips and resources. If we're doing something on, say, you know, cyberbullying, if we're doing something on online community, then we share that brochure and resource with the parent of here's what we're discussing. Here's what you should monitor and make sure that they're not, you know, they're being safe. So all of these curriculums, Common Sense Media, Google's Interland, Be Internet Awesome is one of the curriculums. They all have these resources. Then there's another curriculum that I use. It's by the FBI called Safe Online Learning. And it is oh, okay. from grades three through eight. And that is all game-based. And you it's a challenge. It's, a, it's kind of like a national challenge. So each school can register. And they... For every module that they complete, they get a score. And then if whoever, whichever school has a top score, they get recognized. So the this particular curriculum really includes a lot of what I call phishing and social engineering. So what's social engineering? It's really, it's phishing and not being manipulated, recognizing predators that are online. Yeah, because so much of why phishing works against us is because we think it comes from someone we trust or, exactly. you know, it, it looks legitimate. And those are things that adults fail all the time, <laughs> every day. Yes. So this is work that is ongoing because, like I said, we if we fail at it, I feel that we fail at it because we didn't we are not digital natives. Right. Mm hmm. I didn't grow up. I only, I mean, I, I'm a, you know, I'm of an age where I didn't have all this technology when I went to school. Yeah. And this generation that's now available that is with us are digital natives. They only know technology. They've only learned through technology. Yeah. So even if you're someone who, if you're a neurodiverse student, if you're embedding and constantly spiraling in how to be safe online, it might be more intuitive for them than for us as adults, because we didn't have that immersion and exposure as kids growing up that they do. It's not to say that it's still not a challenge for them, but this is all they know in learning is through technology. Yeah. I wanted to wrap it up here with a pretty broad question, and it's just if you could design like an internet for special needs children, if you could apply UDL to the internet, what would it look like? Well, I'm a sci-fi geek, so I'm going to go all the way out there. Absolutely. And the more futurist, the better, please. <laughs> I would love it to be, so students, if they are kids that use screen readers, these are students that are blind, they use the screen re readers to access the internet and the content online. If you're deaf or hard of hearing, then it's the captioning on videos and so on that's available to you. So every neurodiverse individual needs to do an add-on, right? UDL is about including it, not building something as an add-on or an app. Mm -hmm. So I'm looking at the future where 
we wear like a virtual reality, augmented reality that includes maybe a glass or a headset. And that automatically has some kind of neural network that is tapped into what we want to do with technology. So you put on this device, whether it's a glass, whether it's an eyeglass or a headset or something, <laughs> or a VR you know, headset, and you immediately are saying, if you're thinking, okay, I want to go to this site, I want to watch this video, that's tapping into your preferences and it's taking you there. So you're not downloading an add-on. You're not walking with all these different devices and captionings and so on. It is already an immersive, inclusive device that can just tap in and give you access to the wide world web from shopping to video watching to subscribing to information to posting information. Learning that UDL like came from physical design, right, from architects, that's so intriguing and so like I think it really puts a tangible understanding of of why this matters, right? So kind of as a brief aside here, I studied architecture in school. I have a degree in architecture somehow. Um, and it was something we learned too. It was something that we learned too. We didn't know that that was the name for it, but we learned, right, there's, there's something in America called the American Disabilities Act, which requires access for like physical access for often what we're thinking, right, is like wheelchairs, people in wheelchairs. And there is a tendency for very young designers, architectural designers, just entering school to make a building and then, like you said, add on the ADA requirements. And when you learn that that's such a bad way to design, it really puts a, a kind of tangible understanding that you can push the envelope so much further. It isn't make a building and then make a ramp. It's put the ramp into the building. And then it's like, you can move even further. It's it's not saying like, oh, our ADA access is going to be this elevator. It's really moving further and saying, what if there was no elevator, right? What if you design a building that doesn't have stairs, that only has a ramp? What if the access for people in wheelchairs is the access for everyone? And you start to incorporate these things. And, and again, even when you're in my degree, I'm, I was an undergraduate, even in undergraduate school, you start to see you are building better things. Like you're not building for two populations, you're building for one. And that makes a more streamlined product. Like it's, that's it. And it's, it's great to see that in special education. And my goodness, it would be so great to see that. And it's so important to see that in the tools we use for the internet today. Alana, I just wanted to thank you again for being on today's show. Thank you so much, David. This was really awesome. And I really appreciate that you're giving this as a resource to parents and educators. I think educators as well and, and the, just the wider public on, you know, how we can make really smart, responsible, digital individuals. To our listeners at home, we'll talk to you again in two weeks when we bring you a personal story about ExpressVPN, the VPN service currently embroiled in a scandal over the past actions of one of its executives. Until then, stay tuned and stay safe. And remember, you can read all our cybersecurity coverage on Malwarebytes Labs at www.blog.malwarebytes.com. And please, if you like what you heard today, follow and review our show. <laughs>